Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode. There are over 180,000 soldiers serving in more than 140 countries today. During the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were more than 170,000 deployed just to Iraq. And much of the work soldiers did in Iraq and are doing in combat zones around the globe is not always about fighting. Many times it's about working to create sustainable security and governance in a post-conflict situation. A major part of that is the development of host nation security forces. And in urban areas, that's about policing. I personally spent my time when I was deployed to Baghdad working with local police forces in my area to create day-to-day lasting security. In urban policing, providing safety, emergency services, and security to major cities is an immensely complex topic. And that's why I asked to speak to the guest of this show, Colorado Springs Chief of Police Vince Niski simply to have a conversation about the basics of urban policing so that listeners, some of them who may be military and have to face urban policing as part of their military mission, could have just a little bit more information on how it happens, how urban policing actually works. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Chief of Police for Colorado Springs, Colorado, Chief Niski. Chief Niski, it's an honor to speak with you, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate being able to give a depiction of the Colorado Springs Police Department to the military forces. I really appreciate that. If you don't mind, can we start with some general background about you and as your role as the Chief of Police and how you became the Chief and what are your general duties and responsibilities? Sure. I have a background in a military family. My dad was in the military. He ended up retiring here. That's how I ended up here. But I've lived in Colorado Springs for a little over 50 years now. Joined the police department in 1989. So I've been here going on 32 years. Grew up here. Worked here. CSPD has been, the way I put it, my home away from home. I've enjoyed this job every day. The chief of police here in in Colorado Springs and in most places, most police departments, um, I'm actually appointed. I had to be appointed by the mayor and then approved by city council. They did do a testing process, went through the testing process last year and have been chief since February of 2019. So not that long, but I was a deputy chief for a little over seven years before getting the chief's position. So at any time, I'm an at-will employee. So the mayor at any time, when I do something he doesn't enjoy, he can look at me and say, it's time to go. I knew that going into the job. I think one of the things that really helped me obtain this position was my background with CSPD and the background with the community. I think it's really important to the mayor to have somebody that knows that knows the department and knows the community to help move it forward. I was very fortunate that when I got the job, we weren't broken. I knew the prior chief very well. We worked really well together. This has been a great opportunity for me and one that uh, I've enjoyed for the last couple of years. So I, I thought we might start the conversation about urban policing with a little context about where we're at. You know, a few bases about Colorado Springs and the Colorado Springs Police Department, if you don't mind. So how big is Colorado Springs, both in geographical area and population size? Geographically, we're about 200 square miles, which is large geographical area for a city police department to, to operate. If you look at a lot of larger agencies in large cities, geographically, they're smaller. They may have the same number of people. We're approximately 500,000 people. Uh, we're hoping that this census was going to put us over 500,000. 
because that helps us in grant funding. We get a lot of grant funds and grant funds can be, if you're 500,000 and less, you get less money than if you're 500,000 and more. Where it really impacted us this year was in the COVID stimulus money. We actually, El Paso County got COVID stimulus because the county is over 500,000 and the majority of the county is city, but we weren't over that 500,000. So we actually couldn't apply for the money. We had to get money from El Paso County. We are a large city geographically. We have a lot of area to cover and we have a lot of people and it keeps continues to grow. I think we're averaging about 28,000 new citizens a year for the last four or five years. We're growing. We're big. We really are. And I know a lot of service members out there have may have been assigned here years and years ago. Come on back. We've grown. (laughs) We really have. And how big is the actual police department to cover 500,000 people city? Right now we have 745 sworn employees, but there's a caveat to that, that 30 of those are in our training academy. So 30 of those are in a position where we, we're not benefiting from their service out in the community. We also have 299 civilian employees. CSPD manages the communication center for both police and fire. We have approximately 95 to 100 civilian employees in that operation. We also do records and identification. We have a lot of civilian employees throughout the department. One of the questions I get asked is, is that enough? Is 745 enough? It's, it's not. Uh, it's not. Mayor Southers is committed to, he committed a couple years ago to getting us 120 additional officers by the end of 2022. We still have a number of those officers we haven't obtained yet. COVID has impacted us significantly this year. We were supposed to have a second academy class in November. That got postponed because of the budget. We're going to have that class next January. That class was originally supposed to be 45. Right now we're down to 39 because a lot of the applicants that we offered the jobs to just again recently turned us down. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think uh, some of the community concern over policing has really impacted people's decisions to go into law enforcement now. Is there a ratio or, you know, when you, I know it's it's up to city council, but just in, let's say, urban policing math, is there a policeman to population ratio or a crime rate to policeman ratio that kind of factors into the argument of what size of police force would you need for a city like this? Some studies look at numbers. They don't really look at crime data. They look at the number, population number, and it's different agencies have different funding sources, so they're able to have larger departments than maybe we are. On average, they're usually looking between 16 and 18 officers per per 10,000. We're in about, even when we get the additional 120, we're in about the 14 per 10,000 range. But what I really want to say is Mayor Southers has been very supportive of, of increasing our numbers. It's just so difficult when you have so many needs throughout the city. He does focus on first responders as a primary need, police and fire. He does think that's one of the most important things that the city needs to develop and needs to have. That's why he's so supportive. I think we'll get there. He knows that uh, when we get the 120 in 2022, if I'm still here, I'll be back in his office asking for more. I've already told him that. Man, that's that's fascinating. And even when I was deployed to Baghdad, I don't think I thought about it like that. I had a police station I was assigned to, and I don't think I looked at the math on, you know, our area was 75,000 people in in a few neighborhoods. And I don't think I look at the the math like that. So I find that very interesting. Well, and I think one of the things that, you know, when people give the numbers and say you need 16 per 10,000, okay, so do you need 16 per 10,000 in a Denver area where you're landlocked and you have 
you know, maybe 500, 600,000 people and you're only covering 50 square miles, shouldn't the geographical area that you cover compared to the 200 square miles that we cover, shouldn't that impact that kind of thought process of what is the adequate number for a community your size, number-wise and geographically? So how is the police department organized? I'm sure you have bureaus and stations and different sections and different roles. I mean, I don't, I don't want you to do a complete listing. I know that takes a long time. It's a very big organization, but just in general. In general, we're very similar to the military. Right now, I'm the chief, and I have three deputy chiefs that each run a bureau. So we're split up into three different bureaus. The bureaus are split up into divisions. Divisions are split up into sections, and sections are split up into units. So it goes down very low into the line-level officers and into the line-level civilians. The deputy chiefs, we have nine divisions right now, so they are in charge of divisions assigned to their bureau. Each of the deputy chiefs monitors those, similar to the military. We've, we have a rank structure. Different work, don't get me wrong, totally different work, but we believe in respecting rank like the military does. Our missions are different, and things we do are different. Fully understand that. So I know you were talking about some of the difficulty in finding police recruits earlier. How is that done? Is it just an application online and people apply or, or is recruiting kind of a police department program where you recruit with, from within the community? We have a full-time recruiter whose job is to recruit employees, sworn employees, and he goes out right now and attends job fairs. Uh, we'll go to colleges, go to community meetings, have meetings with other members of the public in our community. We advertise online. We advertise on our website. While we try to attract community members to law enforcement, we do attract a lot nationally. We do attract a lot in the military. We will go to military fairs here locally. You know, we're very fortunate to have five military bases here in Colorado Springs. So there are a lot of opportunities for us to go out and have conversations with military members and try to attract them to policing, hopefully to Colorado Springs Police Department. I think there's a lot of interest. I'm just not sure if military members understand that we're here and that we are an option whenever they get out of the military. I hope they do. That kind of makes my next question almost makes me feel bad about asking it because just like in the military, it's about service to the nation, service to the community. And I, I think, like you said, policing is similar to that. You, you do it for many reasons. And one of them is you want to serve or give back. But just out of curiosity, what's the average pay of an entry level policeman, policewoman? And I know service is a big part, but I'm not naive enough to think that the mere fact you're going to serve in Colorado Springs is going to attract somebody here. There is a attraction about pay. You're absolutely right. Um, you have to take care of a family. We've been fortunate right now if in, in 2020, if you come into our class, our training academy class, it's 27 approximately $27 an hour is what you get paid. What happens, though, after that academy class is we have a step process. You have to be in trouble not to go through the step increase process. So once you get out as a recruit, when you're a recruit, you're making about $4,700 a month. After you graduate, you become a P4 is what we call it. At that point, you're making $5,187 a month. Then the following year, you get a step increase to 5717 a month. Then the following year, you get another step increase to $6,299 a month. And then when you become a P1, which is after four years after the training academy, you're making $7,221. So you're making pretty close to $85,000 a year. And then on top of that, you have benefits. 
Colorado Springs provides healthcare, dental, eye. There's a lot of benefits that you can sign up for and you can receive either as an individual or for your family. So there's a lot of benefits to, to being a CSPD officer or CSPD employee. And, and pay is, I think we are pretty comparable to other agencies our size. Are you going to find ones that pay better? Yes. Are you going to find ones that pay worse? Yes. But I think we're doing pretty well. So once a person applies to the CSPD, I'm sure there's a process. There's the application, but I'm sure there's background checks and interviews. And then in academy, how does that process work? I think one of the detriments to applying here is it's a long process. It can take anywhere from, depending on when we start the process, six to nine months from the time you apply to the time you actually hit the academy. And then the academy is another 26 weeks before you're out into a training program. So it's a long, very long process. I can say we take our process very, very seriously. We are in the business of selecting the best applicants, the people that we want on the department. And our attitude and my attitude is I'd rather not fill fill seats if I don't have the right applicants to fill those seats. So if I have 50 openings that I can fill and I can only find 45 applicants, I'm not going to fill five seats. I'm just not. Um, because what we found through the years is when you fill five seats with people that probably aren't going to make it, they become your problem children, and uh, you're dealing with them more of the time than you are the other 45. Post, we have the Colorado um, Police Officer Standards and Training. They have certain guidelines that you have to fall within their guidelines before we can accept you as an applicant to CSPD because we are a post academy. You have to be certified by post to be a peace officer in Colorado. So our academy is post-certified. And when you graduate here, you are a peace officer certified by post. So technically, you can go anywhere else in the state um, and be a peace officer. That's important, especially during the times we're in now, because I think a lot of public thinks you just go to academy and uh, that academy says go out there. Post has very strict standards that we have to follow. I mean, we follow those standards in our academy. So your application, uh, we'll probably weed some people out through the application process if they check yes on some of the things they're not supposed to. If you make it that far and you're qualified, then you'll be asked to come back for a written test and go through multiple stepping processes. This year, we are going to do a physical agility test, I should say in 2021. We had done that in the past, and we had to suspend that for a few years due to a lawsuit. Now we're going back to a PAT. Um, There are minimum standards that you have to pass in each of the processes to continue on to the next one. If you make it that far, you'll be banded into different groups. We banned our applicants. Then there's a job offer. You'll be asked to fill out a personal history portfolio that gives a lot of information about your history, answer a lot of questions. Once we get that back, we have background investigators that will call you to confirm all the information in your PHQ. Once they're done with their background, we have applicants go to a polygraph. We only do polygraphs with sworn applicants. After the polygraph is done, the background investigator packages that up in a package. We meet in this conference room. I have the three deputy chiefs, HR personnel. You'll also go through a psychological process with our staff psychologist. He sits in this room and we talk about the applicants. We'll go through those applicants each individually one at a time. We'll look at the background report. We'll look at the polygraph. We'll have a discussion with our staff psychologist and then we make a decision, yay or nay. That part of the process I take very, very seriously because we're looking at people that we want to be here for 20 to 25 years. We want people that are going to treat this as a career. It's important to us to get it right. I'm not here to say that we get it right every time. Sometimes we have resiliency issues. We have other issues with employees that we just couldn't identify during that process. Is there an age, not that I'm looking for a job, is there an age restriction? 
The only restriction is you have to be 21 at the time that the academy starts. And the reason 21 is important for us is you can't carry a weapon, handgun. You can't go out and buy a handgun unless you're 21 years of age. So 21 is the cutoff. There is no age restriction above 21 as a minimum. We don't have a maximum. We have several people that come from the military after a military career and a military retirement at age 40, age 50, and join the police department. We're always looking for military because I think we have the same the same insights on service, like you said, service to, to community for us, service to country for military. And we have the same sets of respect for the authority you get for us, We the, the authority we get from our community, the authority that you get from your country. It's the same kind of mindset. So we really, we really look forward to having uh, military applicants because we think that they mirror our beliefs, they mirror our values. I'm sure this, I mean, ethical frameworks are already there, value systems there, lots of benefits. So you mentioned the academy. One, if you get to the academy, that's amazing after all that. So you said the academy is 26 weeks. I think if we're, you know, if a military person was designing a military academy to take a, a recruit to to a soldier, we've been through it, kind of know what it is. I could pretty much say that we'd have little knowledge on what would a police academy, if I was to stand one up in a foreign country, might entail. And it sounded like you said there's like a national standards for what, what's a component of it. But what does the 26 weeks consist of? So it's 26 weeks, and it's a little different now with COVID. This year, we actually had to do online classes, what we've never had to do before. Um, normally, the 26 weeks, you'll have a lot of classroom time. There's a lot of policy, statutes, both city, municipal statutes, ordinances, and state statutes that you have to learn. We teach a lot on ethics. We teach a lot on bias and how not to be biased. And we have reality-based training. We also do 80 hours of firearm skills training. And you have to pass a post-standard firearms course to pass the academy. We also have 80 hours of arrest control and decision-making, 10 hours of ID and collection of evidence, 10 hours of crime scene documentation, 50-plus hours of driving instruction. We really look at a cruiser is really patrol officer's office. It really is, so we take uh, special care in teaching them how to drive. After the academy, after you graduate, and we do lose people through the academy. After you graduate the academy, then you go out into the police training officer program where we have officers that we've identified as police trainers that you'll go ride with multiple officers for a 15-week time period. That's kind of the on-the-job training. There's, I'm sure is in the military, there's a difference between classroom and controlled training in the academy than there is in real life experiences. That 15 weeks of PTO training is really the real life experiences to where a field training officer, a police training officer can look at that recruit and give advice, give guidance on here's how you can do this better, here's how you should do this. And it's really the time to that they learn how to take the case reports, how they deal with citizens, how they deal with criminals. It gives them that opportunity. We do have times where 15 weeks aren't enough for some people. So we'll extend them in the program. But there's a certain point in time where those PTOs and those PTO supervisors make a determination whether this person just won't get it or maybe all the training we provided to them, they haven't accepted, they haven't really valued and, and moved forward and will terminate their position here. In the academy, like I said, and I didn't expand on that, we've had people leave the academy both because we have to fire them or they get into the academy and make a decision that it's not for them. Happens for us too. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does where you have people yeah. apply. They watch TV and think they know everything about the military and about law enforcement. <laughs> and it's totally different. Absolutely. Is the academy an in-resident program? No, you do not have to live there. I'm sorry. 
It is one where they start early in the morning, they end at night, and then they go home. So it's it's just a day. It's just a day process. I shouldn't say day. They do a lot of stuff at night. They'll drive at night, shoot at night, do things at night. But it's usually an eight to ten hour day. It's not where they have to stay in in a dormitory or anything like that. The next question will probably be the most vague, but it is just a general question since I have this time with you. In looking at other areas, other major cities, how does securing or policing a city of this size work? I mean, on a day-to-day basis, what does that look like? Do you cut the city up into sections and each precinct covers their section and then they have a certain number of patrols out a day? I mean, that's what's in my mind just from my own experiences, but is, is that how it works? It is how it works here. As I stated earlier, we have three bureaus. One of those bureaus is the Patrol Bureau. And Deputy Chief Vasquez, who's the Deputy Chief of the Patrol Bureau, manages four patrol divisions. And our divisions are split up geographically. We have the Falcon Division, which is northwest. We have Gold Hill Division, which is southwest. Sand Creek is southeast. And then Stetson Hills is northeast. Each year, we do a shift pick process. So officers by seniority can pick their division and pick their shift and pick their days off patterns. The number of officers assigned to a division are based on the number of calls for service that division had the prior year. So Gold Hill this year may get 95 officers assigned to them for all th- for all three shifts. And then next year they may get 110 because their calls for service went up and someplace else went down. We have five start times in each division. We consider three shifts, but five start times. They start at 5.30 a.m. in the morning and 9 a.m. in the morning. That's our day shift. Swing shift is 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. And then our midnight shift is 9 p.m. We have overlapping shifts so that we make sure we have officers on the street 24-7. Those shifts are actually defined. The number of people that go to the shifts are actually defined by the calls for service the prior year, too. So we don't give a, a commander of a division 100 officers and say, figure out how you want to split them up. It's actually each shift is assigned the number of officers based on the calls for service. We do a little bit of tweaking. I don't want to give the impression it's all defined by a computer. We do a little bit of tweaking, but not much. We think it's very important that we have the number of officers that we need on the streets to handle the number of calls for service. I'd like to give the impression we're doing a really good job of that. We're not. I think we're not because of a couple different things. Our size, I don't think we have enough officers. Again, we're, we're trying to get there. And that impacts our response time. Response times are really one of the data points that you like to focus on on a police department or even a fire department. How soon can you get to a priority call? Our goal has always been around eight minutes. We're probably on average in the 12 to 13 minute range. That may not seem long, but when you're a victim of a violent crime, that seems like a lifetime. We're taking steps to try to improve that. Um, the number of officers that we have if, as we increase, but I think there's there's this perception out there that the 745 officers that we have are all in patrol. They're not because we have investigations. We have Metro Vice Narcotics. We have a canine unit. We have tactical. There are so many other needs out there besides just patrol. Patrol is the backbone of any law enforcement organization. So we try to keep the numbers there that we need. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of work after a patrol officer gets involved that needs to be done. And that's why you have all those other specialized units on a police department. We're getting better. I don't think we're there yet. I think one of the things that really impacts us too is our geographical size. In my days, when I was a patrol officer, if I was assigned to Gold Hill, I could pretty confidently say I will spend most of my time in the Gold Hill division. Very, very rarely back then were we sent into other divisions. It happened, but it was rare. Now I think it's a lot more common that 
the next available officer goes where the next available officer is needed. And if you're looking at a priority one call, a serious violent crime, if you have somebody from Sand Creek who is at the southeast end of the city going to Falcon, the northwest part of the city, um, travel time could take you 20 to 30 minutes. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is we don't have people just sitting there waiting to go to calls. Normally right now, in the day and age that we're at, they're going from one call to the next call and then that call to another call. We are implementing, it's a priority dispatching where we'll know where the officers are located by GPS on their cell phone so that we're not just sending the next available officer, we're sending the closest officer to that call. Should help in our response times. It can be frustrating for officers who signed up for a division and they're not working in that division all the time, but that's what policing's about. We always remind our officers not snidely, but we remind them their badge says Carl Springs. It doesn't say Gold Hill or Falcon Division. It says Carl Springs. That actually fascinates me. I can't tell you how much that fascinates me. Just based on my own experience and as an urban scholar looking at the growth of cities and the density increase of cities, I, I was just with my organization in Mumbai, India, and you're not getting anywhere quickly, and especially during rush hours and things like that. And I experienced that overseas on, you know, something happened and you need to get there quickly. There's just no way to get there quickly or you got to get creative on how you get there. And I can imagine, you know, during rush hour or trying to use I-25 here in Colorado Springs. And I'm sure if you're running code, it, it helps, but. It helps, but it doesn't always get you there. And and in town now, one of the biggest, I think, frustrations for a lot of our officers too is the amount of construction that's going on. Yeah. So yesterday you may have been able to take a quick route to a call and today there's construction there. Now you have to figure out another route. Going code, code three, our lights and siren. You would think that would get you there more quickly, but quite honestly, there's a lot of confusion between drivers on what I should do when there's an officer behind me that's going code three, and they split up, and they go different directions, and they're blocking your other access routes like a shoulder of a road or a median or someplace else. I think one of the things you mentioned, the analytics is amazing. And that's you as a military organization, we're always looking for data. And I think everybody is, but the analytics and what supports how you do this. So I'd like to ask about technologies. Like what type of technologies do you use in a big city like this to help improve policing? You mentioned a couple, but do you have access to security cameras, gunshot detectors, license plate readers? Just a couple of things I know of from you visiting New York City and having a couple of conversations, crime mapping software, predictive tools. Like what kind of tech is helping us police our major cities? I think it's very, very easy for me to say we're not like New York City. We don't have the technology they have. They have had a lot of resources kind of available to them, which is good for them. We do have a lot of technology. I think one of the things that has really helped us throughout my career is a computer-aided dispatch. I mean, back when I started, everything was on paper. Dispatcher would get a call, write it down, and then they dispatch us. We'd have to write it down. Now everything is computerized. All the calls come in. We still vocally on the radio acknowledge, but the calls come in on a screen so that I have access to it all the time. We have recently implemented a software where our officers can actually access those screens on their cell phones now. So that if they're out on a call, they can actually access that call that they're on or other calls and monitor things. Supervisors can monitor officers from their iPhone. We also do have license plate readers. They've been very beneficial for identifying criminals, identifying cars that criminals are using. We use those all the time in the patrol divisions. We have a gunshot detector, but it's a different, it's, it's called Firefly. And we got that through 
the government and it was used for testing here and then we we got it as a, a full-time gunshot detector we do have that available to us that is actually tied in with our communication center so they're the ones that get a lot of that information up front so that they can direct the resources where we need to go body-worn cameras that's a different technology it's not a technology that maybe improves our response or improves how we do business but it's been great in the sense that when we receive complaints we can look at body-worn camera if you want to see what occurred on a call, we go to body-worn camera. It can be great for collecting evidence, great for collecting the view of an officer during a call for service. Security cameras, we have cameras throughout the city we can access. I don't want to give the impression like New York, where they have the artificial intelligence to to look at cameras, to track people, and to do the things like that. I would love to have that and love to have that ability. We just had a meeting with a vendor yesterday to talk about their product, which does have an artificial intelligence software where you can utilize camera data and have the artificial intelligence analyze it for you. I don't want anybody to think it's like a big brother technology. I've gotten the briefing and how it helps people that are watching a camera key to foreign object, key to something just to give you an idea, let's just say right now at our marshal's office, they have a, a panel where they're monitoring 60 cameras. That could be park cameras, it could be art cameras, it could be any cameras. I see the benefit of that artificial intelligence is, let's just say a park closes at 10 o'clock. A city park closes at 10 o'clock and we have 10 cameras out there. I don't want to have to have a body sit there and manage those cameras. What I want is the artificial intelligence to notify that body sitting there that there's activity on this camera in this park. And that's what a lot of that intelligence can do, which is it's time saving. It's staff saving. It's wonderful. I can't tell you how many soldiers I have put in front of a panel of cameras, even if they're just for force protection, protecting ourselves, and how much he's actually getting from standing there for six hours or whatever, watching screens. And then sometimes it's hard to keep, let's just say, soldiers doing things. It's fatiguing. It's very fatiguing. Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, and I think it's a lot of pressure to put on a person that if you're monitoring, say, 30 cameras on a military base and you miss something, can you really expect that person to monitor 30 cameras all at the same time? That's where this artificial intelligence really comes into play, where you use it to notify you when there's something out of the ordinary, rather than you, the person, have to be tracking that all the time. It's huge. We're hoping to get down that road. It, it could be costly at times. Technology is one of those things, though, that I, I think there's a, again, there's a perception out there that technology is all about flipping a switch and everybody's happy. I don't think that's always the case. I know it hasn't been here, CSPD. We went through some issues. We implemented a new record management system and we went through some issues with that. It's not easy to get technology to work with all the other technology you have all the time. And every time we implement something new, we have to make sure we can transition to it smoothly. I agree. And we always say technology is never going to replace the human factors, the need for a disciplined, ethical, adaptive person on the street. But lots of technology can help. It's just tough for any organization to identify which things are the right things to invest in to help through the mission. And you mentioned it before, we do have a lot of software that helps us analyze our crime data. We're really trying to focus on, in the past, it was to focus on the hotspots. We still do that. We still use that data to kind of focus our resources. But what we really found, too, is to focus on the people. If you can focus on the offenders that continue to offend and they do multiple crimes, if you can get them off the street, you actually make an impact. 
It may not be for long, but you make an impact. So we really do look at those habitual offenders as the ones that we target. But again, we use technology to give us that. We use our analysts, our crime analysts, to tell us who those people are based on all of the things that they're gleaning from our CAD system, our records management system, all these systems that we have in place. So another odd question, as a military, we're deployed to not just urban areas, deserts and jungles. And is there anything as a police chief of a major city that you would think is different than if you were policing a rural, a more rural or spread out urban area than a dense metro area, like different challenges or something different about it? I think, again, going back to geographical, our response times are slower because it takes us longer to get there. I think when you have more of a, you may have more criminal activity in a condensed area. I think we saw that a lot during COVID. People were getting tired of being home and they're all in this pent up home and office or wherever they're at. And then whenever some of the restrictions got released, we did see an increase in some of the crime. I think policing in its purest form is the same wherever you're at. It's those social, geographical, and community things that really impact how you do the job. If you compare us, Colorado Springs Police Department, who we're we're responsible for law enforcement in the city of Colorado Springs, and then you look at El Paso County Sheriff's Office, who is responsible for enforcement in the county, which the city is in, in those rural areas, their response times can even be greater because they're covering a much larger geographical area. And they don't have the number of officers available because their crime in those areas maybe isn't as significant in the same area that we have because they don't have the dense population in those areas. It is, it is more rural. I think in denser populations, it can be more difficult to enforce laws than it is in rural areas. But your response times take longer because you don't have the number of people that are actually responding to calls. I know that overall security of a major city isn't, there are many people involved with that. And I know just from being in this city that I see sheriffs, El Paso County sheriffs cars every once in a while. And I know there are many organizations, but how does that relationship work? And like, where are the boundaries and who would you say are the kind of the key participants in overall securing or safety? So for Colorado Springs, let's use El Paso County. El Paso County Sheriff's Office has state authority in all of El Paso County. So they can come into the city and enforce state statutes in the city if they want to. Usually what happens is the city entities. So in El Paso County, you have Carl Springs, you have Fountain, you have Manitou, you have Monument, you have multiple cities within El Paso County. Normally those cities have their own law enforcement agencies. So Carl Springs, Fountain, So we are responsible for our cities, even though the county can still come in the cities. We can actually enforce city statutes, city ordinances, as well as state statutes. So we have both those authorities. I can give those authorities to other people, but normally we don't. We're the ones that force those. Now, State Patrol, Colorado State Patrol, they have authority throughout the state of Colorado. Predominantly, our State Patrol is a little different than... Troopers back on the East Coast who do a lot more criminal investigations. Colorado State Patrol is predominantly traffic-related. They do a lot of traffic enforcement accident cases. They do have criminal pieces that will do criminal investigations, but usually that's related to motor vehicle theft and things like that. The state also has the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, which is, again, a state agency that has authority throughout the state enforcing state statutes. So it can be, I know a lot of people will call us complaining about or commenting on who they thought was an officer, and it was actually a deputy or a state trooper or somebody else. Because the uniforms, while they're different, 
it's a uniform that they're thinking about. And if they're in the city, they think it's a city officer. So it can be very convoluted, I guess, who works where. But just know that in El Paso County, the sheriff has authority to work anywhere in the county, even in a city. And then the city jurisdictions have jurisdictions in the city. And while I don't want to confuse things, the sheriff is actually giving the majority of our officers county commissions so we can do things in the county as well. Because it's easier if I have a criminal that's working in the city that I need to go arrest in the county for us to just do it ourselves rather than have to call them every time. We do notify them. We do deconflict that so that they know we're going into their jurisdiction. This is the complexity of urban areas that I've, I've experienced and, and I study. If I think back to Baghdad, Iraq, even in a developing organizations, I mean, we had traffic police, national police, local police. We had, similar to our kind of national organizations, FBI, ATF. And they can be all in your sector at the same time. And sometimes you know about that. And hopefully you're sharing some some mechanism in order to share all that information. And it's really hard to, I think, in my mind, to, to have real-time accuracy. But I'm sure the operations center or something like that is getting some of that visibility. We do have some of that. I'm glad you brought up our federal partners because we do have CSPD members in uh, FBI task force, DEA, ATF, Marshall's office, HSI. So there's a wide variety of enforcement in Colorado Springs. Our federal partners are great. We get along with them really, really well. I've had relationships with most of them for throughout my career, and we work well together. We have the same goals in mind, which is to put people in jail, put people in jail and prevent crime. That's what we're here for. One of my last questions, Chief, when I was deployed, we had law enforcement advisors. If I could have you put on your advisor hat. So if I was a, a military organization deployed to a, a city, let's say, either a post-conflict zone or any city where the military is assisting in maintaining overall security, usually that's to an, an army force. Often it can be to a police force. What would some of your recommendations be to, hey, I would prioritize these things if I was talking to a police department? So if you're talking to somebody in a foreign country, I guess my first recommendation would be understand what their mission statement is. Know what their goal in policing is, whether it be a local police force or a federal or a state. Understand what their job responsibilities are, what they expect of their employees. Again, I think law enforcement across the world, I don't say they do, but they should have the same goal of protecting their community, protecting their community, fighting crime, preventing crime. And I think one of the important things in U.S. policing that I think maybe we've gotten away from a little bit is really, I think it's important in foreign countries, too, that you associate with your community. Don't alienate your community. Don't alienate yourself to the point where you think you have all the answers. One of the important guidelines that we have is we realize we get our powers from our community. We receive our powers from our community. So to alienate them would be something that you wouldn't want to do. I know it's different in foreign countries. I get that. But I still think to be successful, you have to work with your community and not against your community. And I think for the military, I would give the same recommendation is when you go into a foreign country and a foreign community, know what they're looking for know what their expectations are. And I'm not naive enough to think you can live up to all those expectations, but at least know what they are so that you can keep them in the back of your mind when you're taking enforcement action or working with different members of law enforcement in that country. I think as in any organization, we talk about in the military, I know it's the same for police. I mean, the only way is a profession is through the trust that they've been given by the community. And you have to work to maintain that trust. It's a part of the profession. 
Yes, that's a full-time job. It's a full-time job because certain things happen that chip away at that trust, and then you have to build it back up. But it is. You're absolutely right. That's a very good point. Is It's the trust, the mutual trust between law enforcement and community is what really makes it work. So I think I'll leave it there, Chief. I can't thank you enough for your time. I know you're extremely busy, but I think this will be extremely helpful to any audience to just understand how urban policing works and maybe a, a few key nuggets that somebody might take into a future environment. No, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for asking. I'm honored to do this. We have a very close connection to the military here. So this is very meaningful for me. If I can give one tidbit of information for anybody out there that grasp it, it's a great benefit. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.